Welcome to Euraptor's Digital Brief Podcast. I'm Molly Colleen, a digital and media journalist here, and this week we'll be discussing the changing relationship between media freedom and technology. I'm joined today by three of the authors of a recent report on media freedom and technological change. Vivek Krishnamurthy, Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa, Rachel Kuchma, JD candidate at the University of Ottawa, and Elif Noor Kumru, PhD candidate also at the University of Ottawa. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for being here. Thanks very much, Molly, for having us uh, on the podcast. We're delighted to be here. So to start, can you give us an overview of the research from the report and the key conclusions that you've drawn? This report uh, was commissioned by Canada's foreign ministry as part of the leadership role it's playing in an intergovernmental um, coalition called the Media Freedom Coalition. We found that media freedom as a concept is a little bit underdeveloped. The concept arose in the late 20th century in a particular media environment, um, mostly in, in Western democratic countries. Um, and as some of the technological underpinnings of that media system have changed, uh, we felt that there's a need to sort of re-examine what media freedom protects and who it protects. I think the reason that it's important to, to think about um, this concept of media freedom and evolving it uh, at this particular historical moment is that we've seen a lot of change, right? Um, and it's very fashionable to say, oh, we're at a turning point, it's an inflection point. Um, I think it is um, because we have sort of seen the impacts of, you know, web 1.0 technologies and web 2.0 technologies on the news media. And, and you know, there's been a, a significant realignment. We do have the uh, increasing democratization of news production at the same time as we have the rise of new kinds of gatekeepers um, that control distribution. At the same time, technology has changed the nature of the public sphere and of public discourse. And you know, the focus right now is on on the negatives, um, you know, problems of misinformation, disinformation, all of this. Uh, but there are obviously positives too in terms of the amount of participation that's possible, or the ability to um, bring the spotlight of attention to something that would not have been covered twenty or thirty years ago. What struck us. Well, I think this is true of many different kinds of human rights and many kinds of rights, is that they've originated in a particular time and place um, with particular background understandings of the world in place. And as those change, I think there's a need to revisit them. So that makes this a, a good time. So you mentioned in the report that there's been a push to expand the definition of what or who counts as a member of the media to include citizen journalists, for example. Do you think that there are risks to broadening the scope of this definition, uh, for instance, the potential for malicious actors or outlets that are actively producing disinformation to claim protections under the guise of being legitimate media? In today's environment, you know, um, bloggers, they can produce like valuable uh, newsworthy information in the public interest, uh, which should be protected as long as you know, someone like a citizen journalist engages in journalistic activity um, that's not, you know, sensationalist news for entertainment, but it's actually newsworthy, fact-based information in the public interest, um, then they do merit protections, in my opinion. Not everything should be protected, of course, only the, you know, 
information that's in the public interest and merits protection. I also think that, you know, the field of disinformation studies um, has shown us that disinformation is a very complex phenomenon, and there are certainly some new actors in the field. But there are many actors that look much more like mainstream legitimate media that are part of the problem. And we can think of um, you know, certain kinds of 24-hour news channels in a number of countries, state-sponsored broadcasters um, that uh, basically uh, are a tool of their own government's agenda. So I, I don't think that expanding the definition beyond traditional news outlets necessarily has an impact on disinformation. I think as Noor said, quite rightly said, there are people out there who put themselves at great risk um, to engage in journalistic activity who are not um, large institutions. And you know, if they're doing that public-spirited function, um, they should be eligible for the protections. The report also asks whether platforms that aggregate and disseminate the news should be considered media and therefore be eligible for protections. But as we've seen in France with the transposition of the Copyright Directive, for example, there are massive tensions between these actors on the one hand and organisations that gather and produce news content on the other. So what do you think the impact on the media industry would be if the businesses that are producing these disruptive technologies could claim the same privileges and protections as more traditional news producers? There's two different issues um, underneath here, right? One is the question of remuneration, right? And we've seen activity, the French copyright um, uh, reform, as you mentioned, and you know, measures in countries from Australia to Canada to... Um, think about how um, news content producers should be remunerated when their content is shared on social media. And that's sort of part of a bigger conversation around how do we pay um, for high quality journalism in an environment where the 20th century business model um, of media has largely fallen apart. That is ad supported public interest journalism. It doesn't work anymore because technology platforms have gobbled up the advertising business. So that's sort of one set of issues. But when the report describes this question of imparting some media freedoms on, on social media and other kinds of platforms, the idea is that if social media companies are playing a certain kind of role in the news dissemination ecosystem, right? They're the ones who are delivering the stories to readers for better or for worse. Uh, or even engaging in curation or perhaps their own original journalism, um, then the question arises of how do we treat those functions, right? And those functions are different from the other kinds of things that social media companies do. But in the report, we don't take a particular view on how to solve this remuneration problem, other than to say that governments need to pay attention to this and do something appropriate in view of the important public um, functions that uh, a me that the media and the news media play in, in democratic societies. So another issue you raise is that of technologies such as AI and deepfakes, which you say are creating an environment of generalized mistrust when it comes to what people can see and believe. Where can policymakers start when it comes to addressing a problem like this? I think with AI, especially there's a lot of negatives, but there's also, there's a lot of risks, but there's also a lot of opportunities here. And within our report, we, 
look at deep fakes somewhat in a spotlight view to see what these opportunities and risks look like. Um, for policy, we see Julia Hosh, and she's somebody that we cite throughout the paper. She mentions that transparency and accountability somewhat go hand in hand when we look to where policy should begin. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it. We can't produce these answers in this report, but we somewhat throw the question back at these policymakers to see what transparency would look like for us and how we can be more accountable to our readers or to the general public. So you characterize the shift that we're seeing in the media industry at large as a move from a few-to-many model of news production with a mass audience to a many-to-many model of mass participation in news production. Do you see this as being, on balance, a positive development? And do you think there's a way for policymakers to keep up with the speed at which technology is reshaping the sector? The shift from a few-to-many model to a many-to-many model, of course, it has positive and negative aspects. For example, um, in the past, the it was only a small group of, you know, privileged, uh, mostly white male upper class um, who were responsible for, you know, who, who were the gatekeepers of um, media, legacy media. But... Um, now there can be more like minority groups, more diverse voices. Today, uh, one only needs an internet connected device and an access to a social media platform. It seems like um, the participation in the news is more democratic because everyone can now publish, but we actually have uh, new gatekeepers um, in the form of social media platform and search engine algorithms, which curate and moderate content. And those algorithms, um, since the purpose of those platforms is to uh, increase their ad revenues, those algorithms prioritize the more um, sensationalist and um, controversial, you know, scandalous content because that attracts more attention and uh, keeps the users on the platform for longer and increases ad revenues. So the more click-worthy uh, content uh, is driven up to the top. That may not be factually accurate or in the public interest, which can, of course, um, amplify polarization and harm democratic discourse. That's all we've got time for today, but make sure to sign up for our free digital brief newsletter to receive an overview of the week in European digital politics and policy every Friday. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or Amazon Music. I'm Molly Colleen. Thanks for listening. Listener.